coffee yet today, but I'm ready to rock. If you don't have a Bible, they're right back here. I want to say a couple of things before we start. Number one, I've been watching So You Think You Can Dance. I just find myself dancing more, you know? Just hear music, and I just want to dance, dance. I like it to dance and dance and dance. <clears throat> that was an inside joke that only like two people got, but uh, should I tell them? Okay, I used to be a youth pastor, and we had this guy named Troy who came and did like program, which is basically like a run-on skit for a retreat that we did, a weekend retreat, and his character was Antonio Amore, and he would come out in this, it was terrible, like 80s spandex kind of like hair wig thing, and he'd do this like choreographed dance to Come On Ride the Train, do you know that song? Come on ride the train, it was And then he would do this whole shtick like, my name is Antonio Amore, I love it to dance, 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 so maybe we should have him come back. What do you guys think? Yeah, that would be awesome. That was not in the script. Uh, oh, 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 okay, okay. Um, yeah, uh, so you think you could dance? Not a family show. Uh, but I find myself, oh, I did a wedding last night on a boat. Can you believe that? Has anyone ever been to a wedding on a boat? No, thank you. I, I hadn't either. First wedding I've ever performed on a boat. And I got to be honest, it was trippy, right? Because you're standing there. Dearly beloved, we're gathered here today. Uh, Holy buckets, is this thing moving? Yes, it is. You know, there's like, there's moving things in the windows, the glass, and it was trippy. But it really cool. So if you have any, if you're going to get married and you don't know where yet, check out the boat option. Um, All right. Moving on to more serious things. Uh, Here's number one. We sang a song uh, called Nothing But the Blood of Jesus, right? Uh, and I was thinking, I was standing back here dancing, I like to dance, and I was thinking to myself, you know, from the outside looking in, that's got to sound really weird, right? All this talk about blood. Did you know, historically, that uh, those that did not follow Jesus, when they looked in on the Christians, they thought they were cannibals, literally, because they talked about, like, eating the blood of, or drinking the blood of Jesus and eating the body of Christ, you know, communion, right, the bread and the wine, and they literally thought that these people were cannibals, and so I just thought I would say there was something that happened that we believe was absolutely essential and paramount, kind of pinnacle in the whole story of the gospel, in the whole story of the Bible, and it had to do with Jesus, who died on a cross, and so this idea of blood being something that cleanses us uh, is, is where that comes from. And it's a very profound image, but I, I thought, you know, it could be a little weird from the outside looking in. So if that was you and you were thinking, this is a little odd, I wanted to clarify that. Secondly, I would say, last week, if you were here, I talked about, uh, we talked about uh, God and God's creation and his intent for creation. And at one point, I think I actually said, because we were talking about God the creator, and in reference to God, I said he, she, or maybe a better pronounce or a better, you know, nomenclature would be it. And I saw a few of you kind of go, you know, that look as if to say, are you nuts? Like, who are you and what are you talking about? 
And I used to be a youth pastor, and now I'm a father, and I, I never want to pass up an opportunity, like a teachable moment. And so I wanted to just briefly, before we got into this morning, touch on that, like why would I say that, and what does that say about what we believe about God, and then we'll jump in. Fair enough? Okay. Uh, so the whole idea of God, uh, I want to say a couple things about this. Number one, when you search the scriptures, if you do, you will find that the majority of the uh, terms or usages or references to God are used, they're using male pronouns, right? He, him, father, all of these kinds of things. So for me to say he, she, or re- maybe a better term would be it to describe God, I'm, I'm, I'm rocking the boat a little bit. Here's a couple things I think we should, we should think about. Number one, the nature of language. Language in and of itself is an interesting thing. I, I kind of like to think about it as a cloak. Uh, if, if we're trying to describe something as it is, like the essence of it, we use language to, to do that, but language always falls short of describing the thing in and of itself. It always falls short of getting to the actuality of what we're describing. So it's as if we cloak whatever it is with language to try to give it shape and form and definition, right? And so language is a cloak. It's not spandex, okay? You follow, right? That was a really good joke. I thought I was really, shoot, but it doesn't. It doesn't give. It doesn't give away everything, right? For good, bad, or ugly, it, it, it's a cloak, and, and so there's always going to be things left in the shadow. So language, in and of itself, is kind of a tricky deal. Second, the nature of the the culture in which the Bible was written. Think about two thousand years ago, Middle Eastern, uh, very patriarchal, paternal kind of uh, uh, landscape, and you have a group of people who are writing about God. If you're going to reference something that's out there and it has both uh, masculine and femininity, masculinity and femininity, and you're in the first century, you're probably going to refer to it as what? Father, right? Because why? Because women have no rights. They're property. Uh, They can be used for whatever you want them to be used for. So for anybody to refer to God as woman would be just totally off limits, culturally speaking. So if you search the scriptures, you got to remember this thing comes from somewhere. It's not just out of nowhere. So the references to God are going to be paternal. They're going to be male. They're going to they're focus on the, the masculinity of God as a being, right? And then I think you have to understand that both man and woman in the Genesis account are, are in the image of what? Of God. So back up the train a little bit, take it, a, take it to its logical conclusion or its logical uh, Uh, beginning, God has within God's self both femininity and masculinity. So men and women are both created in the image of God, and somehow they both represent this being called God. So when we talk about God and I say he, she, what I'm trying to say is that God is, um, uh, uh, kids are in the room, so uh, God does not have certain body parts, okay? You, are you tracking with me? Uh, that's not, and, 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 when, and the, 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 the difficulty is sometimes when you read the scriptures, that's really what we kind of think. Like God is man, he's, he's, he's a father, he's him, it's always he, it's never she, except for in the Psalms when God wants to gather Israel under her wings like a chick, mother chick, right? Uh, language, right? We're, we're putting language, we're cloaking something to try to give it form and definition. So God is both, well, God is neither, right? In all, in all, honesty. God is neither male nor female, but somehow the image of God is within both man and woman. So I wanted to just uh, touch base on that this morning because I sensed a little bit of a, 
not animosity, but just a little like, what? What is that? What is that about? Uh, before we even got going this morning. All right, we all cool on that one? And I think this is an ongoing conversation. So if there are folks who are here who are like, I still don't get it, dude, or I completely disagree with you, awesome. Love it. Let's have coffee. Let's go have lunch. Let's continue the conversation because it's one worth having. All right? Can we agree to that? Cool. Ecclesiastes chapter 4, if you would turn there, please. We're going to transition to our teaching this morning. We're in week 2 of a series called Corner. And uh, this whole series is based on a passage from Deuteronomy chapter 24, where the Israelites are told, don't harvest your field to the edge. Uh, don't, don't go all the way to the edges if you're going to pick your grapes, or you're going to harvest your olives, or you're going to harvest your fields. Leave some around the edges for the alien, the foreigner, and the widow. And the idea is, for Israel, don't, be the, don't become the people who wring the land for all it's worth, but leave some, be generous with that which what you've been given by God for the people who are around you. So there's this inherent, there's this built-in generosity that God says to the Israelites, and he warns them, essentially. He does, we talked about the difference between a warning and a command last week. I don't think God's commanding the Israelites here. I think he's warning them. He's saying, hey, listen up. If you fail to be generous, you're, here's what's going to happen. Your hearts are going to shrink. You're going to become focused on yourselves. And this is what happens to the human heart when, when, when we fall prey to this. And so God says, don't do that. Don't harvest your fields to the edge. So this whole series on Corner is about generosity. It's about a value at Awaken that we want to say, this is one of the things that we think is at the heart of what it means to follow Jesus. It's at the top of the list. It's important. It's at the center. And it's one of the things that we want to kind of do life around. And so... Um, We talked about the fact that generosity is not necessarily, or it's not predicated, it's not uh, always connected to money, but rather generosity is a posture of the heart. It's a way in which we see God and the world we live in and the things that we have. So it's not always connected to money, or maybe you could say it differently. Uh, Generosity is not dependent upon finances, but it's something bigger than that. It's something deeper than that. So this morning, I want to explore this further, and, and specifically this idea that generosity is first and foremost uh, a perspective on the world, a perspective on God and the things that we have and he, that he's given us before it ever becomes anything tangible. So Ecclesiastes chapter 4, you might be thinking, odd place to, to, to go from a, for a series on generosity, and you're right. Right, because Ecclesiastes, if you don't know, is the book of uh, it's a book of wisdom. It's a guy named Solomon, or at the very least, someone who's writing pseudonymously as Solomon. Uh, debate around that, but neither here nor there. It's a book that he or or Solomon, as a person, writes, or someone writes as him, and it's and it's basically his treatise on all that he's learned in life. Right, if you remember in First Kings three. God comes to Solomon and says, what do you want? It's like genie in the bottle. I'll grant you whatever you want. And Solomon, in a moment of brilliance as a young man, doesn't ask for women or money or power or any of those things, but he asks for wisdom. And God gives it to him. Now, things don't go that well for Solomon. Later on in life, he becomes an arms dealer and he enslaves his own people, which is pretty awful. But uh, be that as it may, Solomon writes a book called Ecclesiastes, and in it we get all kinds of wisdom about Life and the meaning of life. You may recognize a couple of famous phrases from it. The birds made this one famous. For every, every season, there, uh, there's a season, turn, 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 right? For every season under the sun, there's a time for weeping, a time for mourning, a time for laughing, a time for crying. You know that one. And then there's another one that Solomon utters over and over in the book, and it is meaningless, meaningless, everything is meaningless. Maybe your translation says vanity, vanity. It's all vanity, right? Chasing after the wind. 
So, how are we going to talk about generosity in the midst of that? Buckle up. Ecclesiastes chapter 4. Here we go. Verse 1. Actually, will you stand with me as we read this? This is the word of the Lord from Ecclesiastes 4. It says, Again, I looked and saw all of the oppression that was taking place under the sun. I saw the tears of the oppressed. They have no comforter. Power was on the side of their oppressors, and they have no comforter. And I declared that the dead who had already died are happier than the living who are still alive, but better than both is he who has not yet been, who has not seen the evil that is done under the sun, which is essentially to say that he who has not been born. And I saw that all the labor and all the achievements spring from man's envy and his neighbor, or of his neighbor. This too is meaningless, a chasing after the wind. Fools fold their hands and ruin themselves. Better one handful with tranquility than two handfuls with toil and chasing after the wind. And again, I saw something meaningless under the sun. There was a man all alone. He had neither son nor brother. There was no end to his toil, yet his eyes were not content from his wealth, with his wealth. For whom am I toiling, he asked, and why am I depriving myself of enjoyment? This too is meaningless, a miserable business. Let's pray. God, we're uh, in the midst of a book that uh, doesn't have a very positive outlook on life, and yet uh, we believe that there's something here for us. And so I ask that you would speak. I pray that you would... uh, Do what you need to do here in this room this morning. Speak whatever words you need to speak, uh, regardless of what I say. Uh, I pray that you would use the words that I've prepared and that I say and speak, and uh, that you would take them up and make them your own, God. Uh, We pray in your name. Amen. You can have a seat. Okay, that was pretty depressing, right? (laughs) Everything is meaningless. It's a miserable existence. Here's what I want to do. Right in the middle of this little passage, verses 5 and 6, there is this brilliant, brilliant little phrase where the wisdom teacher offers a couple of thoughts on our hands. And I want to explore this because when you read it in English, it's the same word. Hands and handful, you get it translated. It doesn't change at all. But if you dig into the original language, and you know me well enough, uh, if you know me, you know me well enough to know that there's something right below the surface that if we dig a little bit, it's just like, bam, and I think it gets really, really cool really, really fast. So that's what I want to do. I want to explore this, and uh, we're going to start with the two handfuls, and then we're going to go back to the folding of hands, and then we're going to end with the middle one. So here we go. In the original language, which is Hebrew, you have three different words that are uttered for the same word that we translate hand or handful. If you explore them, I think that they shed light on what the wisdom teacher is really doing here. So ver- uh, the first one, two handfuls. The Hebrew word, if you're taking notes, is kofen, and it's C-H-O-P-H-E-N. And if you were a real Hebrew speaker, you would say kofen or something like that. Uh, I'm not, so I just do the Minnesota version of that. Chopin. Uh, But the definition really has to do with this. It's like a clutching, a grabbing, a grasping, getting as much as you possibly can. Uh, It's like clutching and grabbing. Anybody watching the Stanley Cup playoffs lately? A couple of? No. Okay. This is Minnesota for crying out loud. A few of you. Uh, clutch and grab hockey is like you're grabbing at people, you're, you know, grabbing jerseys and pulling with your stick and kind of, it's this really, really tight race and everybody's in there just like, in there. 
This is what it's getting at. It's this grasping and clutching and this trying. Translated into our world, you might say things like uh, the rat race, the stress, throw some elbows, rivalry, competition, get what you can, go, 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 until you've got what you need. And I'm sensing that all of you in the room have no idea what I'm talking about based on the culture that we live in. So I found a movie clip that I think illustrates this. I want to show this. This is one of my favorite movies ever so, uh, and one of the worst actors on the planet. But here we go. He won an Oscar, so here we go. It's pretty incredible, isn't it? It's like a museum. Uh Uh-huh. Look around. So what's the big surprise? You didn't rent this for the weekend, did you? Think bigger. For the week? This place is a perk, Kate. A perk? Mm-hmm. For what? A company called P.K. Lassiter Investment House uses it to attract new executives. I'm going into arbitrage, honey. It turns out I have a knack for it. Jack, what are you talking about? I'll be making twice what I make now. Plus a hefty bonus, and that's just a start. And we can live in this apartment practically rent-free until we find a place of our own. Are you out of your mind? I don't think so. This is going to be a better life for all of us. We could put Annie and Josh into private schools. Annie goes to a great school, Jack. I'm talking about the best schools in the country here, Kate. Jack, what could you possibly be thinking about? What about my, what about my job? Well... This is New York City. It's like the needy people capital of the world. Your Jersey clients aren't a tenth as pathetic as the ones you could find here. (laughs) I I, I can't even believe you're talking about moving back into the city, Jack. I thought the reason that we left was because we didn't want to raise the kids here. No, no. This is the center of the universe. If I were living in Roman times, I would live in Rome. Where else? And today, America is the Roman Empire. New York is Rome itself. John Lennon. Jack... Listen, okay, okay, you know something? I'm detecting, like, a funky tension here, and this was supposed to be a happy day. So guess what? I don't need this. We don't have to live here. Forget it. I'll I'll commute. I'll drive to work. (gasps) In traffic, Jack, it's over an hour each way. That's like three hours every day. When are you ever going to see the kids? Kate, you're not understanding me. I'm talking about a perfect life, a great life. Everything we pictured when we were young, the whole package. You said so yourself. Life has thrown us a few surprises, so we made sacrifices. Well, guess what? Now I can finally get us back on track. I can do that, Kate. I want to do that. I I need to do that as a man for all of us. Please just think about this for one second. No more lousy restaurants. No more clipping coupons. No more shoveling snow. Then get a snowblower, Jack. Don't go get a new career without even telling me about it. And don't, don't take Annie out of a school that she loves and don't move us out of a house we've become a family in. You're... you're... Don't you see? I'm talking about us finally having a life that other people envy. Oh, Jack. They already do envy us. What makes people 
want to ditch the things that mean the most to them in their life, the things that should be the most valued, the things that should be at the center. Hofen, right? It's this grasping. It's this this amassing of more and more and more. Do we, can you throw that one image up there, Katie? I wanted to just have an image for, for each, each one of these. Uh, <clears throat> and this attitude, that this, this, this particular position or way of seeing things, it's rooted in an attitude of scarcity. Have you ever heard this term before? Scarcity is this idea that it's rooted in this belief that there's not enough to go around and I've got to get mine while I can before the supply is all dried up, right? I grew up with four brothers. A lot of scarcity going around it with four brothers, five boys in the, in the house. If you didn't eat quickly, it was gone, okay? Whatever was there on the table got consumed faster than you could say one, two, three. And if you didn't get it while you could, it was gone. Uh, we had a phrase that we kind of came up with as brothers. We took the golden rule and just tweaked it a little bit, and it was this. Do unto others quick before they do it to you, right? Do unto others quick before they do it to you. It's scarcity. It's hofen. It's the grasping and pulling and, and, and wanting more. The wisdom writer says, better one handful with tranquility than two handfuls with toil or with, with, uh, with pursuit, with it's chasing after the wind. It's Havel. So that's one image. Then he gives, on, on the one hand, he gives this. And on the other hand, no pun intended, uh, he says, the folding of hands, the fool folds their hands. So the word that's used here, uh, and, and this, is a, this is great, because this, little, this, one, this one verse is a delicious little nugget. Because there's this word that's used, and then this concept that's sort of drawn in, and the writer connects the two of them without you even knowing it. So the word that's used is yod, and the word itself uh, has this, this idea of power, means, and direction. Uh, it's whatever your hand will do, whatever your hands find to do. Yad is about energy, it's about will, it's about uh, strength, it's about how you direct yourself and how you, how you move in the world and use your energies to do so. And it's all under the assumption that this is coming from God. It's a gift from God. Not Yad, it's a gift from God. Yad is a gift from God. Um, and then, so that's the, that's the word he uses, but then he, t- he connects it to this little phrase that we find in wisdom literature in the Proverbs. So if you have your Bibles, turn to Proverbs chapter 6, just left a little bit and uh, in, in a couple of pages. Proverbs chapter 6, we get this phrase that, we, uh, that the author connects it to, and it's this. Verse 10, it says, a little sleep, a little slumber, a little folding of the hands in rest... And poverty will come upon you like a bandit and scarcity like an armed man. So the author of Ecclesiastes takes Yod, this idea of that which has been given to you, what your hand will do, the energies, your will, what you will direct, how you direct your life and invest it. And then he connects it to this phrase, a little, a little, uh, what is it, a little rest, a little slumber, a little folding of the hands. And what happens? Poverty will come upon you like an armed bandit, scarcity or something like that. So the author connects the two. The folding of hands is about those, uh, or, or it's about those who fold their hands and let life pass them by. But the word itself, right, yad, is about means and direction. So it's as if the folding of our hands is saying to God, you've given me life, you've given me the ability to work, you've given me power, you've given me the ability to do something, but I choose to fold my hands. Folding of our hands at a deeper level is like saying to God, you gave me life, you gave me energy, but I choose to check out. Now, this, of course, 
goes a couple of different ways. Let's connect it back to our last series, One Thing. We talked about poverty. We talked about hunger. We talked about justice and injustice. And I would say that sometimes when poverty is at play, what you have is the folding of hands. Because the folding of hands is a laziness. It's a slothfulness. It's a, it's a willful desire, a choice that we make to not engage, to not invest ourselves, to not work. And what will happen? Poverty will come upon you like an armed bandit, right? We understand poverty is something that's bigger than just money. But sometimes when, po- when we're talking about poverty, this is exactly what's happened. Sometimes it's not. Sometimes what we're dealing with is systems that are unjust and that, that uh, you know, set all the variables up against a particular person or a family. So sometimes that's the case, but sometimes it's just laziness. Uh, one of the guys who, who's been coming to Awaken called me after we started talking about this, and he's like, dude, I'm just, I'm, you're messing with my head here. Help me work this out. He said, you know, my mom's telling me this story about this family that she's helping, this immigrant family she's helping. She helps these guys, this family, you know, get assimilated, get their documents, all this other stuff. She helps this guy get a job, and then during the job, the boss asks him to sweep the floor and mop the floor, and he says, no, that's what other people do. Some other race, some other immigrant person, he says, that's what they do. So he, that's laziness, that's the folding of hands, and, and through a racist perspective on life and work, this particular person folded their hands, and what's happened to them? Poverty has come upon their family. But sometimes, poverty, or this folding of hands looks a little different. Sometimes there's a folding of hands that's laziness, it's a conscious decision, but sometimes there's another possibility, and I think this one looks like it's a reaction to something that we've experienced. Right? Some, God has given us, Yod, the ability to work with our hands and be creative and do something and invest ourselves. And sometimes when we do that, we get burned. We get whacked. We get walked out on. We get beat up. We get fired. We get let go. We get stabbed in the back. And what's our, what's our first natural response? Right? What happened the last time I put my hands out there? I got whacked, I got burned, I got fired, I got let go, I got walked out on, I got stabbed in the back, I got whatever. And so sometimes the folding of hands is, 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 is a response to what's happened to us. And the really unfortunate part, the part that really bugs me, uh, out of self-preservation we fold our hands, but then, then sometimes religious people come in and they say, you know what, actually, this is a part of God's plan, and God wants to teach you a lesson, and so whatever happened, whatever hurt you felt, whatever thing you've gone through, it's actually part of God's divine plan, and he wants to teach you a lesson through it. To which I would respond, I don't really want to be a part of any relationship with a God who is that sort of capricious, who in order to teach me a lesson, takes my creative energies that he's given me, and so when I put them out there, he whacks them so he can teach me a lesson. Obviously, what we're talking about is sovereignty, God's will, all that kind of stuff, and I'm putting my cards on the table here, uh, and I think pastoral counseling is really difficult when you think of it that way. I think sometimes when we put our hands out there and we get whacked or we get fired or we get let go or we get dis- uh, uh, walked out on, that what's at play is more the, the, the decisions of free moral agents in the world. Because the gospel is about restoration and it's about redemption. And it's about restoration and redemption in the midst of brokenness. So I think God enters those situations and says, despite what you've experienced, this is not what I intended for you. This thing where you folded your hands because of what happened, that's not life and that's not what I want for you. I want more for you. I created more for you. And in the midst of brokenness, the gospel comes in and speaks a word of hope and restoration and redemption. That's just how I, I see it in particular. 
So the folding of hands, I think, sometimes is a conscious decision that we make that shows up as laziness. Sometimes it's a response to something that's happened. Either way, the wisdom teacher says, to fold your hands is to willfully participate in an experience of life that that is less than what God intended. Let me repeat that. Either way, to fold your hands, whatever that has been brought about by, to fold your hands is to live in a way to willfully participate in a life and an experience of life that is less than what God intended. So the wisdom teacher offers these two diametrically opposed deals, Hofen and Yad, and then right smack dab in the middle, right? Just when you think all is lost, like which one is it? If this is bad and this is bad, what could it be? He offers one hand with tranquility. Hofen is this cranked up, grasping, vying, chasing. Yad is this sort of intentional checking out, disengaging, and then right in the middle. One handful with tranquility. And the word that's used here is kaf, K-A-P-H. And the the image is this. It's like the the open hand. Uh, The the, the literal is translated uh, the sole or the palm of your hand, the hollow or flat of your hand. And it still uh, has uh, the connotation of there's power, there's still will, there's still something that God has given, but it's very, very different than this. In fact, if you would, hold one hand like this and hold one hand like this, right? Fist in one, palm in the other. Now look at your palm. What can we say about this? It would be easy to put, to, 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 uh, it would be easy to take something out of this hand. It would be easy to, for me to give something away, but it's also very easy for someone or something to place something in my hand, is it not? And what does this say about what I'm grasping? What's, what's the message here? Mine, right? You know, Smeagol from Lord of the Rings, my precious. It's mine, it's mine. But what does this say? It says, it's a gift. What I have is yours. Take and eat, take and drink. Thank you, right? Those are the things that are being said with this particular style or this particular understanding. So this is the image that the wisdom writer gives us, an open hand. And last week I talked about uh, we stumbled on this one at Awaken. We, we continue to talk about things. You can not stop doing this if you want to, uh, if you hadn't already. Um, we talk about this idea of wanting to hold things loosely, right? And we talked about, I talked about me as a pastor, as I view you as a congregation, one of the disciplines that I'm trying to get into, and some days are better than others, is to hold you very loosely, to hold this church very loosely. It would be very easy for me to pick this thing up and to take it and make it mine, maybe even with good intentions, but to try to build it and create it and do it and fashion it and all this other kind of stuff. But what I want to do, the kind of person I want to be, is one who says, God, this is yours. Awaken is yours. Ultimately, it's yours. Do with it whatever you want. I I can't force it. I can't make it happen. And when, we, when I stumbled on this passage, I was like, oh, dude, we've been talking about that all along. This is fantastic. Don't you love it when an idea you've got comes together with like a brilliant idea from Scripture? And you're like, oh, I didn't even know that, but I was living that way anyhow. <laughs> I didn't even know what Kofen meant and Yad and, 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 and Kat. I didn't even know, but all snaps. So when we found this, it was, when I found this, I was like, oh, Yes, yes, this is exactly what we've been talking about. This is, this is one of the things, when we say generosity, this is where we want to live from. Because people who live here, get this if you get nothing else, gang, people who live from this place recognize that everything I have is a gift. 
my resources, my time, my talent, my passions, everything. And however God wants to use it, I am open to that. I give it freely and I receive it freely. People who live this way are a non-anxious presence in the world. And don't you think that the world needs a little bit more of that? A little less hofen, a little less grasping, taking, gather it, mass it, get it before it's gone. A little less disengagement and, and a little bit more generosity. Because to live from this place is to understand, I would say, generosity and what it means to live as God intended us to live. So generosity, where we started, is not something that's determined by finances, connected to finances, but generosity is a step back. It's a position. It's a posture. It's a way in which we see our stuff and a way in which we hold our hands. Let me close by saying this. Generosity, before it ever takes shape or form in action, is rooted in a particular way we understand God and ourselves in the world. It's one that lies between Hofen and, and Yad, between the folding of hands and whatever, uh, and the grasping of hands. Generosity, before it ever manifests itself as a gift given or something, it's rooted in our hearts and it begins with our hearts. And so, how do you see the world? How do you see your stuff? How do you see your time? How do you see your resources, your passions, the things that you have? Are they a gift? Or have you worked for them? Have you made them? Are they yours? Maybe some of you here today, your hands are folded. Because of whatever reason, maybe you've put yourself out there and you just got burned. And you're natural. You're, you're mo- the most honest, self-preserving response has been to fold your hands, to disengage, to stop being creative, to stop giving. Maybe somebody didn't like one of your ideas. Maybe you got fired Maybe you got let go. Maybe you got walked out on. Maybe you got stabbed in the back because you put your hands out there and they got whacked. And I just want to encourage you that the God of the scriptures, the God of this story, as I read, is a God who enters in the midst of that tragic and horrible place and says, this is not how you were meant to live. This and this, disengaged, checked out, not not giving your best energies. That is not how you were meant to live. And I have made you for more. Maybe you folded your hands. And maybe you need to think about what does it look like to live from this place. Maybe some of you, either explicitly or implicitly, you've picked up along the way that you need to get yours while you can. That if you don't get it now, it's going to be gone. And you've amassed and you've maybe done it even under the, under the guise of, of good intentions. But it's about protecting your stuff. And when your stuff comes into contact or the possibility of it being given away or being lost, it raises your blood pressure. You start to get a little warm. And you have to ask, who owns that? Or maybe said differently, do I own it or does it own me? Because I think sometimes our stuff has the possibility of owning us. When we don't live from this place where it can be freely given and freely taken, where we can freely receive and we can freely give, the wisdom 
teacher of Ecclesiastes says, fools fold their hands and poverty comes upon them. Better one handful with tranquility, with peace, with grace, with stillness, than two handfuls grasping with toil. Ultimately, it's chasing after the wind. So what are your hands doing, I guess is my question. Let me pray. Uh, As I do, I'd I'd love for you just to listen. Um, We have this written on the website about the value of generosity at Awaken. And it says this, Awaken believes that people who follow Jesus should be the most generous people in the world. That God has poured out love and blessing on us so that we can be a blessing to the world. Just like Israel, we are, to ble- we are blessed to bless others. Living a life of generosity is at the core of what it means to follow Jesus. And we will be generous with our time, our energy, our resources, and our love. God, would you teach us what it means to be people who live with open hands? God, where we view our stuff, our resources, our time, our passions, even the relationships in our lives, where we hold them loosely and with an open hand, and we say, God, it, all of this is a gift. It's, been, it's by grace that you've given, and it's by grace that, that, you, that you allow me and uh, empower me to give back. Help us to be the kind of people in the world. When those outside of the church look at Christians, they would say, Those people know how to live. Those people know how to be generous. There's something about them that's different. Uh, They know how to throw the best parties. They know how to care for one another. They They give like nobody I've ever seen. I pray that that would be the case when people look at Awaken, when people look at your church in general, but specifically what we can manage and have a say in is what happens here, and I pray that that would be the case, God. By your spirit, empower us to be the kinds of people you want to be in the world. I pray by your... Your name, Jesus, and the power that raised you from the dead, which now lives in us and through us as your church. Amen.